By having a pre-lodgement meeting, sometimes you're already starting to negotiate before you've even lodged your DA, the development application. And what I mean by that is, let's, let's use a bit of an extreme example. Let's say that um, you've got a site and you want to do uh, 10 townhouses. Now, it might be that the planning scheme says that, that, that as, a, as a bit of a, a generalisation, that the scheme would suggest six. So if you go in there with 10 as a starting point during your pre-lodgement meeting, and council says, no, we will never support 10. Then you go in to do, when you lodge DA, you start at eight. Then you've already lost two from your negotiation position. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to the Property Developer Podcast. It's great to have you with me. I've got a terrific show for you today as we speak with a town planner about the planning phase of the developing game, and I think you will enjoy it. Before that, a quick update on my townhouse project. The builder is making good progress. They're doing the first fix of all the wiring along the back row of terraces, and they've also started to install some of the shower bases in the bathrooms. The glass windows are on site and will be installed over the coming days. And a guy was there this week washing down the brick walls that have been put up to get all the muck off them, and they were coming up an absolute treat. Check out the latest update video I produced on the show notes for this episode over at propertydevelopmentpodcast.com to see how the bricks look after a clean and how the project is progressing. The front row of terraces are looking good. If you tuned into the last show, I think I mentioned how the framer had accidentally installed the first floor ceiling height 20 centimetres lower than our drawings and was potentially going to have to pull them all down and start again. Fortunately, they managed to avoid having to pull down the frames and instead just added a strip of timber along the top of the frame and attached it all together, which apparently meets the engineer's satisfaction. They've started putting the second level frames in, so it is really starting to take shape and they are starting to come along nicely. And the Water Authority installed our new water main, which looks nice and shiny. So everything is moving along steadily. Now, my other big news is that I've managed to secure my next development site. It is the site I tried to buy at auction a few weeks back, with the property getting passed into me at auction, but their negotiations stalled over the vendor's price expectations. So after a few weeks of back and forth, we finally managed to agree on a figure and I got it stitched up. So I've swung into action and had the arborist going in to remove the trees that don't require a permit. The land surveyor is booked in for a survey and the architect is working on the scheme we will take to council. This is an exciting time in a development project as the architect works up the town planning drawings and the idea starts to become a reality. The plan is to get the planning application into council within three months, and I'll keep you posted on how things are going. Okay, on to today's show, I speak with private town planner Craig Christie from ASI Planning about how developers can approach the planning phase of the development process. This is one of the most important parts of the game, as this is where you can potentially set up your project for real success, and obviously getting the planning permit is a big step in reducing the risk of your development. And shortly I'm going to be going through the process myself, and I know what a difference it can make getting council to support your application, rather than getting stuck and having to resubmit plans, or worse still, start to lose units. Craig provides some very useful tips about when you should use a private town planner, and how to get the most out of them, some great suggestions on handling council objections, and one way you can encourage council planning officers to keep your application moving along. I started off by asking Craig what food he could eat until he was sick, and his answer surprised me. 
Um, what food could I eat? Probably lobster. My first experience was eating lobster. It wasn't until I was in my early 20s. And um, I just fell in love with lobster. So I think I could uh, eat that forever. <laughs> hey, you've got the poshest answer so far on that question. Is that question. right? <laughs> Probably the most expensive taste. So. <laughs> yeah, most people are opting for pizza or chips or other kind of heavy foods. <laughs> yeah, not a big foodie, but lobster definitely does it for me. Oh, well, lucky uh, you live in an area that has, is close to the coast and you get mm-hmm. lots of good seafood. Absolutely. All right, Craig. Well, we're here today to talk about town, town planning, which obviously is a key element of the development process and something that developers are always very interested in, particularly getting approval for what they want. Can you give us a bit of a background on yourself and how you got into town planning? Yeah, sure. I was, I was born and raised in Western Sydney. Um, got to that age where you just had to finish high school. Everyone sort of puts pressure on you about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. I honestly had no idea, but I looked up uh, different degrees and town planning was appealing because it, it was like a professional job where you could be indoors and outdoors. And I really love the outdoors as well. So that was appealing and did my um, degree down in, in Western Sydney, um, Hawkesbury, which was a three-year degree. And since then, I've worked for a, a number of different town plan uh, councils, a number of different uh, councils in Sydney, but also moved up to Queensland about 10 years ago and um, been doing town planning for the last sort of 10 years up here in, in Queensland. And, um, mate, yeah, enjoy doing town planning, enjoy running a business and uh, enjoy helping people get great outcomes. So tell me, um, how does someone become a town planner? What kind of skills do you need and why would you get involved in the profession? Yeah, it's one of those things where I don't think anyone wakes up as a, or as a six-year-old kid and says to their daddy they want to be a town planner when they're older. I think it's not really on high on high the list. Generally speaking, on behalf of myself and a lot of people who work for us, a lot of geography backgrounds, um, but also um, I think what's really, um, really like, you know, generally you do a three or four-year degree, but the aspects of town planners that I think um, that I see coming through a lot, particularly in assessments, is people who love um, to get great outcomes and love to negotiate. I, I love negotiating. Negotiation. I, I, we were talking earlier a little bit about negotiation, and uh, I love it. I love just trying to work out the best way of getting the best possible outcome for our clients, and um, and being able to uh, to work out a way of positioning ourselves so that we get the best possible outcome that council would support. And what do you say to people who make the claim that town planners are just frustrated architects? I've never actually heard that one. So, um, what would I say? I would say that maybe, I've, maybe I've never heard that. <laughs> maybe that's just for the uh, plant, town planners that work. Oh, in of council. course. No, no. I know what you're talking about now. Yes, I can. I can relate to that. Sometimes when we're at council, and no, I can. Sometimes when we're at council, the town planners from council start to think they're architects. Yeah, and they start doing. What do you do this? What do you do this? And it's all well. That's all great. But what about the fact that you just completely destroyed the profitability of the project or whatever it may be? So. Um, I think um, town planners should stick on what they're good at and, uh, and definitely leave the drawings to the, uh, to the professionals. Yeah, well, we might come back to that because uh, that's <laughs> the bane of uh, a developer's uh, relationship with a council town planner is that they do start saying, change that facade, change that sometimes. material. Um, I've seen some examples where sometimes it can work. I've certainly been in meetings where the town planners come up with some suggestions that's gone way outside of what we expected them to say. I think if you position the meeting well, um, sometimes you get counsel. If you've given enough rope, they'll sometimes give you answers that you're kind of leading them towards, but they come up with a solution themselves, mm-hmm. and therefore they're more connected to that solution. So it's like their idea, and they're more supportive of that. So I've seen situations where that can work as well. 
And so when you say that council or the planners should stick to what they know as opposed <laughs> to sort of drawings, what is it that they should know? Well, I guess um, there's two different types of town planners. So if you look at council town planners, ultimately what council does is they write the rule book and the rule book is their planning scheme and their planning scheme is a, like a performance-based scheme. So therefore, um, the rule book typically says if you do this, you know, A, B and C, you should get approval um, and if you don't comply with A, B and C, you should consider what the impacts are to see whether they're reasonable. I guess what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, you had a property that had a requirement for a six-metre back reboundary setback. Um, and that if you do that, then you fully comply. It should get approved. Sometimes there's good reasons why um, setbacks less than that should be okay. And that might be that the reason at six metres is to protect privacy of rear properties, but you might back onto a park or a reserve or whatever, in which case um, planners should then consider, well, who's going to be impacted by the development? I've always thought... Um, a lot of town planners overcomplicate the process. Um, ultimately, council's planners are there to check to see whether it complies with the scheme. And if it, if it doesn't strictly comply, is someone going to be impacted by the variation to that scheme and is that reasonable? And that's kind of the gist of it. And, and likewise, as, as a private town planner, our, our goal is to try and walk that, that, that grey line between obviously something that fully complies is a no-brainer, something that, that's grossly non-compliant probably won't get supported. So we're trying to find that balance that is, is the, what I call council's least acceptable, um, least desirable, acceptable outcome. So we're trying to find our most acceptable, desirable outcome. We're trying to find what the best thing we can do for the site is and council's trying to work out what they consider, well, that's okay, we can live with that. So I think it's negotiation to find that point. Well, in my experience, if only council planners were there sort of ticking off against the, the planning <laughs> scheme, that would be a good thing. But uh, interesting. See, we, I'm Brisbane, you're, you're Melbourne as well, so I, I can't speak on behalf of what happens that much in Melbourne because I'm not that familiar with how town planning kind of goes down there. So it might be state to state, you get different experiences. Um, but yeah, they're interesting. Well, the other challenge in Melbourne is that there's a lot of different councils so i know in brisbane you have just one big council in That's melbourne right. there's quite a few of them spread across the city so it makes it yeah. pretty challenging and sydney is the same sydney i used to work in north sydney council and, and there's a lot of councils in that area so you get a lot of um variations to rules and it's very hard to remember them because there's so many of them yeah so i guess that raises a point that i've always pondered is that shouldn't if you engaged a good designer Mm-hmm. Whether that's an architect or a, a, a drafter who's pretty familiar with the local council and what they want, shouldn't they be able to help you as a developer navigate your way through and come up with a solution that sort of maximises the site? Mm. And the answer is, then, in many cases, yes, they should. And what I mean by that is you don't have to have a town planner. There's nothing that says you have, your application has to be lodged by a, a town planner. What we often find um, with the, the, the designers we work with, the... The, the better designers work really closely with us um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, they're, they're wanting to better understand, the, the I guess, the fine print, how to try and, I guess, almost like look at the, the controls and how to try and get an outcome which isn't quite um, you know, in, in, in the grey area of those controls. But also, um, I think town planners, I, I often say we're here to find all the problems before we find all the solutions. And what I mean by that is, is if, if a client, let's say you were to call me with a property the first thing I'd be looking at would be what can possibly go wrong. Are there overlays? Is, does it affect it by flooding? Is it, is it all those, is, are there engineering issues? And what we typically find is designers, whilst they're good at design, may not have enough rounded knowledge around those other aspects. And you might find yourself buying a development site with a great design only to then work out that there's a servicing issue that can't be overcome and you've kind of 
you've got a site which can't be developed. So really good designers are really good at designing, but I think town planners have a bit of a, a, a an understanding of all aspects of planning such that we you know, we look to make sure people don't buy sites that just can't be developed the way they think they can be developed and therefore they don't lose their money because they've overestimated what they think they can do. Mm, yes, which is a problem. So how can a developer get the most from a private town planner? I guess that's what you'd describe yourself as, wouldn't you? Mm-mm. Yeah, we, so we work privately. So I think the um, the way to get the most out of your private town planner is is first of all, ask lots of questions. Um, I often get people apologizing for asking lots of questions and I say, no, don't do that. Ask lots of questions because I don't know where you're at. One of the questions I'll often ask a developer will be, is this your first project? Um, because I want to understand where they're coming from so I can better understand how to answer their questions. Um, but the way to get the most out of your town planner, a few things. One is always be educating yourself at the same time. Whilst it's good to have that knowledge within the town planner, it's also good to have your own knowledge. And, and sometimes um, if, you, if you've owned a site for a long time, you know your site better than the town planner ever possibly could. So the, the town planner might not, not know things about that site. Like um, it might be that council says, oh, you need, there's too much traffic on this road. You need to provide access from an alternative point. But because you know the property, like, well, no, that's not true. So a lot of that, that knowledge about a particular site can be brought into, into the project. But also um, I really encourage people to challenge their town planner. Um, if they're getting told something by their town planner that doesn't quite fit right or feel right, then Ask them why they say that, and just keep challenging them. Because ultimately, you kind of your project is your baby. And and uh, whilst you know, as a town planning business, we we deal with over two hundred applications a year. Um, we want to give each individual application at most attention. But sometimes I get questions from my clients, like oh, that's a great question. Let's look into that. So um, I guess I'd always say listen to your town planner, but also just see if it makes sense and challenge them if it's not quite making sense to you. Um, but I guess even in choosing a town planner, try and find someone with that local knowledge that's got a lot of experience doing the types of projects you're wanting to do. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. How, how, well, not, not, not so much finding one, but um, perhaps filtering them out. What are the kind of questions that a good developer would, could be asking a town planner to figure out whether they know what they're on about? Yeah, I, I guess the, the point I make there is don't be embarrassed to ask challenging questions. Um, I think you know sometimes I'd be asking questions like so when we're okay you might let's say you're doing a, a subdivision project for example you might speak to the town planner and say when was the last time you got a subdivision project like this approved and how many do you do these a year and how many people work for you um, those sorts of questions so what I find um, I don't think I'm a genius but I think because I've been doing it for so long and because we've got a high volume of applications I get so many experiences and as a result of so many experiences then we're pretty much always up to date with what council's position is with their planning scheme. So if things change, like we had a situation in, in, in Brisbane recently where council were reinterpreting their own scheme and <laughs> we were the we were the, one of the first two to find out. So it, in a really bad sense because it really messed up one of our projects. But if you're a, a planner that was a bit quieter, you might not know for five months that that planning scheme, that part had changed, where someone who's got a high volume will be more up to date with the changes in the scheme. It's, that's a good point because um, I know people who've had the experience where council has changed their interpretation of their own mm. planning scheme. Um, why would they do that and what are the implications for you as a developer about that? Mm. It's, I'll first say it's a horrible situation. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, we've, we've only been kind of burnt by it once and it was quite painful. Um, why did council do that? I think what happens is, at some, well, this is my my belief, and at some level, that council coppers cops so much um, 
um, backlash about one of their schemes or an approval. There might be an approval somewhere um, and it might be for political reasons that the, the public get upset about that approval and then council go about seeing how they can reinterpret their scheme to stop those approvals from happening further mm-hmm. um, and in which case you know, the logical thing would be that council has to change their scheme but sometimes they just say, well, no, we're, we're, we're interpreting our scheme differently now and we've had some times where we're like, you just shake your head and you think, how, how is it they can interpret their scheme that way? It's just it's beyond belief. But end of the day, they make the rules. And unless you're heading off to to the court system to try and challenge them on those rules, you've got to, you know, and then again, you're going to have the expenses of doing that. You have to try and deal with those changes as best you can. So um, as a business, we, we try and keep council accountable as much as possible to their, their own rules. Um, and it's just tricky. It just really is extremely frustrating. Yeah, I might come back to heading to a tribunal um, shortly. Sure. But if you are having problems with a council, what kind of things would you do? Because I don't think it's uncommon to kind of not be on the same page as council. You've got an idea as a developer about how you can maximise the site. They've got an idea as a council about what's best for the – what they perceive to be best for the local community Um, and maybe you – how do you get closer together? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll take a step back because I, I often hear um, the public and also other town planning firms complain about council and whinge about council. In some ways, you know, I just had a whinge then as well, but that was a reinterpretation of their own scheme. I think sometimes what happens is that um, the public or some planning firms, they don't know the scheme so well as to work out what they believe even before buying a site is possible. And then sometimes they buy a site, but they pay too much for the property. And next thing you know, they're, they're effectively doing whatever they can to get a yield that the scheme never really would have encouraged in the first place. So it's for lack of knowledge about what the scheme wants in the first place means they've purchased the property paying too much with an expectation of a higher than expected yield. Um, and then you're kind of reeling from that point on. Everything you're trying to do is trying to, you know, trying to effectively break council's rules. So I think the first thing is, is have before, even before you buy a property, make sure you have a, a worst-case scenario position and be confident that your worst case scenario is something that's realistic that council would support pretty much you know you've pretty much know that beyond that then is when you're pushing the boundaries a bit and um i was talking to a client um a few days ago about sometimes it's a personality clash um so sometimes you just be careful about whether whether the town planner you're engaged in um is coming from a place of butting heads with council um i learned a really good i had a really good experience when i was starting town planning nearly 20 years ago down in North Sydney. Um, one of the, the manager of planning back then, I was with him my first two weeks of being at council and we had two pre-lodgement meetings with, uh, with the public and this first developer came in and he was quite cocky and quite arrogant and I basically saw my manager just chew him up and spit him out, something chronic. He just got hammered. And then the second client come in and they were very open to the idea of suggestions and, and, and asking questions and, and being quite amicable. And I saw that same manager who spat out the previous client helping this developer, working out solutions to problems they didn't even realize they had. So I learned from that that you don't always have to be logheads with counsel. You just got to understand what their desires are and what their needs are and try to work out how you can best achieve what they want with what you want to find that point that's you know the best outcome you can possibly get for your client. Um, end of the day, counsel can refuse your application and if they do yep you've got to go to court but you're going to spend a lot of money so you want to do whatever you can to try and avoid that expensive possible and this is where a good town planner should be able to sort of tiptoe through the minefield a little bit yeah yeah exactly and it's 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 like 
I think in a lot of ways, the majority of the work for us anyway, in my mind, is done even prior to the person purchasing the property, even before the, the contract goes unconditional. Because once it goes unconditional and once you're committed to that deal, you're kind of stuck with a good or bad deal. So it's really important that you know, you're able to understand what's possible with a site. Um, and that way the client can do their feasibility based on that and, and know that their worst case scenario is they're going to do okay. Best case scenario, they do very well. But you just want to make sure you get a worst case scenario position that works for everyone. Yeah. And then in terms of, do you recommend having pre-app meetings with councils? Mm, great question. I, um, <laughs> this is, that's a really good question. I answer it two ways. It depends. Yes and no? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> I'd say it's more, it depends. I'd say what I mean by that is um, let's say you're about to buy a property and there's a critical aspect of the site that you really need to understand and if you can't overcome that critical aspect, you won't buy it, then I'd recommend having a pre-logic meeting because the reality is you want to know whether that issue is going to be so big that you can't overcome it. But if you already, if you already own the property or you're already committed to the, the project – by having a pre-logic meeting, sometimes you're already starting to negotiate before you've even lodged your DA, mm. the development application. And what I mean by that is, let's, let's use a bit of an extreme example. Let's say that um, you've got a site and you want to do uh, 10 townhouses. Now, it might be that the planning scheme says that, that, that as, a, as a bit of a, a generalization, that the scheme would suggest six. So if you go in there with 10 as a starting point during your pre-logic meeting and council says, no, we will never support 10, um, then you go into do when you lodge DAE start at eight. Then you've already lost two from your negotiation position, mm. um, and the public only ever sees the one you've lodged with eight, not ten. So sometimes if you lodge it with ten, um, you're starting from a stronger negotiation position, and then the public see how much work council's done to negotiate it from ten down to eight. As opposed, does that make sense? It becomes more of a, a, a starting point. But I always say to clients, it's a bit of a game, and you've got to work out how you want to play the game. It's going to take longer to do it that way. It's going to be more costly because of design fees. Um, but yeah, it's just a matter of working out how to play that game. Yeah, that tends to be my view. I don't. I don't. If if you understand the scheme, the area, as which you should, if you're a good developer, then you should have a pretty good idea about what is possible. Yeah. Um, and and beyond. And then I tend to think it just if you know that, then going to council and sort of saying to them, this is what we're thinking of doing, I, don't, I just don't see a tremendous amount of benefit no. in doing that. It's, it's ultimately, if you don't have a really big question to ask, then what's the purpose? Um, so some people say, oh, why don't we just go and visit council? I'm like, well, that's great. Why? Um, well, don't we want to just meet with them? Like, yeah, cool, but why? <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to have less good. dealings with them as I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes you say, well, it builds rapport. And it's not, depending on the scale of the project, if it's, a, if it's a sensitive, publicly sensitive project and you, need, and you know council are generally in support of it, but you kind of start working together. We've got a medical centre we're doing. Uh, it's quite a large medical centre. And we've, we knew we had public support by council, but we wanted to work out together how we can negotiate that process. Um, so therefore, we sort of met with council to, to kind of work as a more of a team. Um, but that's not always the case. So, yeah. Yeah, I just think if you know what you can do, don't alert them to yeah. your highest and best use at the start. Yeah. Go in with what uh, you want and then sort of work back from there. And there's something that I'm not sure in in, in sort of other other states, but in, in Queensland, there's a process, particularly in Brisbane, called Risk Smart, and it's basically whereby if you do low risk, more so fully compliant applications, we can get something like ten townhouses ten houses townhouses approved in just uh, five days. So if that's where you want to go with things, then you say, well, do you want to meet with council? 
beforehand. Well, maybe you do if you want to, if it means the difference between getting a five day approval and getting a 30, uh, sorry, a three month approval and you've got some little parts you want to tweak up, then maybe it's worthwhile meeting with counsel first to make sure you're going to get through really fast. Mm, okay. Now, when you're there considering an application that's going in, what, uh, when you're preparing your report, what are the kind of key considerations that you immediately look for? Um, things that jump to my mind would be neighborhood character, visual bulk, maybe whether height's compliant. Yeah. What other things or are they... Am I on the wrong path? No, no, I think you're on the right path. Basically, I always look at it. My starting point is what's the black and white? It, typically in planning, nothing's really black and white, but we try and work out what are the black and white parts. So it might be um, that we comply with, say, 60% of the scheme around certain aspects. So that part's the, the part that council can effectively look at and tick boxes and say, yep, you comply. It might be um, number of car parking spaces or height or whatever it may be. And then you get the grey area. And as soon as you get the grey area, it might say, we encourage two storeys. If you want to go to three stories, then that's obviously the grey area. And that's the area you really want to give all your attention to, to, to what it is that we think we can justify why we should be able to go to three stories. And that might be what's happening in the area, uh, other developments that have been recently approved. It might be because of the neighbours uh, are a long way off the boundary or the different uses. So I think the, the general gist of it is, is get the black and the white out of the way as quickly as possible. So then you can put majority of your argument in, and majority of your time into... Um, into those aspects that um, that need the most of your time to get council support. Yeah, and I think that's where a private town planner is actually really useful because they can then also point out the things that you could possibly apply for dispensation or for mm-hmm. or for council to waive things like whether you needed an additional visitor car space because I know we had that waived on our current project instead of having four, we asked them for three and they they let it through. Yeah, and a lot of that will be to do with it might have been proximity to public transport or you know, availability of parking in the street. Like the black and the white was perhaps you needed five spaces, but the grey was, well, there's probably a reasonable justification here for less spaces and these are the reasons. And it's not, not that hard typically. You think about it, well, if we're going to ask for less visitor car parking, that means that one more car can't park on site. Where will it park? Will it park in the street somewhere? Is there parking in the street? So even, even a non-town planning um, developer can look at that and say, okay, what, what do we think out in, in, in common sense terms, what sort of things do we need to try and use to try and justify not complying? Yeah, which was weird because we they had asked us to remove, change two of our three-bedroom properties down to two-bedroom ones yep. uh, and to reduce the number of car spaces the number of uh, cars on site and they wanted to reduce car parking demand. So they said, we'll change your three betters down to two betters yep. and you get rid of two cars. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I said, yeah. but those people are going to have cars and they're going to need to park there any somewhere. So how does it actually reduce the on-site demand? It just shifts it somewhere else. No use, if if council are telling you what you want to hear, there's no use arguing with them. Is that <laughs> Well, no, they were, well, I just said to them, I'm not going to, I don't understand your logic on this, but I'm not going to fight you on it. If that's what you want, we'll give it yeah, to yeah. you, but it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and sometimes things don't, you know, we scratch our head. If, at the end of the day, if it doesn't make sense to us, but it's, you know, it doesn't really have an impact on the development or some ways it means getting an outcome we want to get, yeah. um, then you just scratch your head and let it go. But if obviously it gets in the way of what you want to do, then that's when you're going to argue that point further. Um, have you got any other tips for how you can deal with council when you're going through your application process? Yeah, definitely. We talked a bit about doing a pre-logic meeting. At the end of the meeting, what I, what I try to do is make sure that everyone's on the same page 
and what I try to do is make sure that I might say, so just to finish up our meeting, um, can we just make sure we both agree to like A, B, C, D, and just sort of just do like a verbal minutes of the meeting so that way there's no misunderstandings and there's no way that counsel can kind of backtrack on what they've said and then later on say, well, we didn't say that when you've got a clear, really clear notes and a really clear discussion to that point. And would you email that to them saying here's yeah, my recollection can. of yeah, the yeah. meeting or here's the notes that we took that we agreed upon? Mm. Yeah, we, you could email them to council. Um, it'd be even better if you got them to council before they did their own meeting minutes, um, because they may they they may reflect that in their own meeting minutes as well. Um, but yeah, it can be really frustrating if like I think council can be really good at not answering questions, and they can be really good at trying to avoid uh, making statements. So just trying to trying to put gently corner them to make so they're making statements you can actually start to make decisions based on. Yeah, they are very good at being evasive. Up yep. until you actually put something into them and then they tell you what they don't like about it. Yeah. Um, and then what about councillors? Because you have the statutory planning department. Yeah. And then what happens when it sort of moves over into the political side of the council when and councillors start to become involved? What happens yeah, we, there and what, what can you do about it? We typically, every council has, every council has a situation where the councillors have what they call call-up powers and call-up powers basically just means that a councillor can say, I want this application to go before a council meeting for a council decision as opposed to under delegation whereby the town planners have the ability to make the decision. And effectively what happens then is you get, you go from one arena, which is does it comply with the planning scheme and how's it in a planning sense, to then moving to a political sense. Um, and then you've got within that councillors, you might have a political yeah, you've got Liberal Party or Labour, whatever they want to do to to um, to position themselves in that kind of hierarchy. And next thing you know, you're perfectly good projects going south fast because some councillor knows a neighbour of no, you know, knows someone who knows someone, and it, it 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 shouldn't be that way, and it's not meant to be that way. Whether it is or not, I don't know, but you certainly don't want to, if possible get into that sort of councillor space. But also, I guess, in some ways, you can use that to your advantage as well, and that is you might want to, even at the earliest point of a project, start to talk to the councillor to see how pro-development they are um, and if they're pro-development, sort of introducing your idea of the project to them to try and get their support for what you're wanting to do with your project. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I haven't, in, haven't been involved with that personally. I've sort of seen it touched on with another colleague, but um, I can imagine it would get pretty messy when the politicians start getting involved. Mm-mm. And you, even to the point, sometimes you see that the manager of planning just looking at you, like, you know, almost shaking their head, thinking, you know, I've seen that in a meeting once. I had a, a town planning manager look at us and, and they just, you know, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe where this councillor is. Like, you know, they're, they're effectively, they're, they're, they're mums and dads themselves, the councillors. Whilst they might be far more knowledgeable about planning than your average mum and dad, they sometimes don't really understand what they can and can't do under the act we work under and they start doing things which are a bit out there. So it can be, can be, um, yeah, a, a difficult course to travel. And then what about dealing with, say, junior planners versus senior planners or managers and how how would you go about accessing, say, a senior planner if you had a sort of bigger project and you just didn't want to muck around with talking to a junior planner and you really wanted to be dealing at the start with someone who was probably going to make a decision? Yeah. Is there a way of influencing that? Yeah, usually it's like, usually if you, if it's depending on the scale of the project, if it's a pretty basic project, you're probably going to get we'll put with a, a more junior planner. And if it's a no-brainer, then you're probably not going to have a problem with that. But if it starts heading south, um, usually you would politely ask who their delegate is or who their team leader is and uh, and just ask if you can speak to that team leader. Obviously, that to some extent starts to break a relationship a bit with that more junior planner. But end of the day, 
you got to do what you got to do. And um, if it means getting into that uh, more senior level to try and better understand, because they're the, ultimately the decision makers, it's the highest level. So I'd always recommend if, if it's not sort of heading the way you want it to or you're concerned about it, is just politely ask them who their manager is and say you just wanted to run a few things past them as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tricky because sometimes we've had situations whereby junior town planners have been quite supportive um, and we thought we were going fine. It gets to a high level and all of a sudden we start seeing problems and it's yeah, like, exactly. wow, you know, didn't expect these problems to be arising. Yeah, well, that's, I think, yeah, that's my point. Mm. These more senior people start going, no, 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 can't do that. And if you've mm. just been dealing with them from the start, uh, yeah. you would have known. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then what about, so is there any way of influencing getting your application in front of a, say, a planner that you've dealt with before who's familiar with how you go about doing things? Um, usually not. Um, well, it depends if it's, if it's, what you'll typically find is that councils are broken up into different areas. They might like have a north team, a south team, east and west team. So if you're doing a development that's very comparable to one you've already done, it's probably quite possible you'll fall back in the same planner's lap because councils, senior planners or managers will know that they've already dealt with another project. Um, so more times than not out of luck that you get put in the right hands. Um, as far as influencing that, I, I don't really know if council would be too warm to you telling them who they want you want to have assess your application because it could be sort of seen as favoritism so it's kind of a a tricky spot where you yeah you just kind of you know we've got certain projects whereby we work with the same planner every single time because of the nature of the projects we we just we've got such a close relationship with that planner now and and it just makes life so much easier but as far as trying to choose who it is from council you want to have a look at your project I, i don't think that's really that achievable what I what I what I'm a big believer in is having absolute control all the time, and what I mean by that is that if you do something with council, let's say that you have a conversation with council and they say they're going to do something, um, you might say, let's say they say, well, um, you know, I'll I'll have a look at that, and I'll get back to you. I say I just say, oh great, when do when do you hope to get back to me by? And they might say, oh, well, next Wednesday, cool, because typically people will come back with a time frame. When you actually ask that question, they feel a bit embarrassed to go to a longer time frame. So they might, you, they might say, well, next Wednesday. And you might say, cool, if I don't hear from you by Wednesday, do you mind if I touch base with you on Thursday? Um, yeah, sure. So what you're doing is you're, just, you're kind of keeping them accountable to their own time frames. And therefore, when it's Tuesday or Wednesday, they're like, wow, you might get up the pro to this because they know they've made a promise to you. Um, so always politely get them to give time frames. That way you can keep them accountable to their own time frames. Oh, yeah, that's a good tip, good idea. And so tell me, what's uh, some of your war stories, maybe some of your biggest, maybe failures, or not failures, but the strangest things that you've tried to get through that got knocked back? Yeah, I don't have to, there's not too many strange ones. I guess the most frustrating one, as I was kind of referring to earlier, was whereby um, it was a, a very basic project. It was just for uh, effectively a two-lot subdivision with two small lot houses, the way the council were interpreting their scheme, and they just changed the way they interpreted it. So all of a sudden, without going into lots of details, the profitability of the project just got smashed. Um, so that was the most difficult situation we kind of dealt with in, in recent times because, yeah, what do you say to a client when... Um, all we can do is go back and say, hey, council, for whatever reason, are now interpreting their scheme differently and we're going to try and pressure them as much as we can to maintain the position they had when we first lodged it, but this is where they're at. So that was you know, really disappointing. I guess I, I, I hate nasty surprises and for us that was a nasty surprise and for the client that was a nasty surprise. Um, so I guess probably the worst worst outcomes – We haven't, fortunately, we haven't had too many bad outcomes, um, but there have been times when um, – Either one or two things, council changes their, 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 their planning scheme or sometimes we've got another project with about 50 
um, or not quite, but close enough 50 objections to it. So when there's a lot of public objection to a project, it gets very political and that can get um, quite difficult and nasty as well. Yes, I was, that's a good segue into objections and how you, A, handle them, mm-hmm. and then B, how do you perhaps avoid them in the first place? Mm. Yeah, so how you can avoid them in the first place is sometimes, depending on the site, if you, if you talk to neighbours and start to build a bit of a relationship with them, I wouldn't always recommend doing this, but if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're good at building rapport, you can actually start showing them what you want to do in advance. Um, they, often they see that as a polite thing to do and they don't get a, a, a surprise letter in the mail about the project. That might help reduce the amount of submissions. Um, I did that on my la- or this current project. I did that when we were going through the planning phase. Yeah. I did it work, do you think? Do you think I, you did the right thing? Yeah, in look, yeah, I think it did. I mean, we got three objections in the end, which it was a pretty substantial development in the end that was being put on there. Sort of, we started off with 10 and then went to 14 and then ended up at 20. Yeah. Uh, but we'd, I went around and dropped off letters to the neighbours yeah, just letting them know that this is what we were planning on doing, and I and I kept doing that along the way. There's there's a downside of doing that, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. The reason that it doesn't sometimes is you give the neighbours more time to get organised. Yep. Um, in which case you're kind of giving them more opportunities to to be prepared to object to your your development. So I'm not convinced it's always a good strategy. It's kind of tricky. I guess you'd want to sort of somewhat suss the neighbours out before you go and tell them what you want to do. I'm, not, I'm still yet to be convinced either way is a better strategy. It's just tricky. Yeah, my view on that is that people are going to, if they're going to object, they're going to do it anyway. Yeah. Whether they've got enough, well, they're always going to have enough time because they, they get notification and they get a, whatever the period is so they've always got mm. some time but i always mm. it's better to get it to know early <laughs> what you're going to be dealing with and you can typically like for people who are things like um i don't know if, if people got price finder or things like that they can sometimes work out who their neighbors are and whether they own multiple properties because you start realizing well my, my neighbor to the left is a developer as well my neighbor to the right has lived there for 20 years it's not hard to work out where your issues are going to probably come from yeah okay all right so that's a way that you can avoid it what about when they come? When they come, Particularly yeah. when you get quite a lot. I'll start with, let's say you weren't getting quite a lot. Sometimes I, we just talk to council and we just say, council, hey, there's been a few submissions here. We think all those areas have been dealt with within our application. Do you think we need to respond to these or not? And sometimes I'll say, no, no, it's fine. Don't bother. Which is, a, which is kind of a way of giving us a little it's, – it's, it's a bit of a tokenistic way of they're showing support for the proposal. So we do that to kind of sort of gain momentum in the, in the direction of support. Um, if they say, yeah, you really should write a submission here, we're really quite concerned about these objections, and you're like, oh, okay, we're really concerned about that. So as a town planner, when we receive lots of submissions, we typically check with council whether they, they expect and want us to respond to them because we don't, we don't always do that. Um, if we do, we then just summarise those objections and try to you know, respond in a way that helps council respond to those neighbours. So I guess our, our, our mindset is that, that we believe council wants to approve our application as well. We just need to help, we need to help them and give them information that's going to help them respond to people who have made submissions to, it, to, to the project. Yeah, so how does that work when you then put in a response to the objections that goes to council? Do they pass those on to the objectors or do they yeah, it's just all use that to nah, inform it's all, their response? It's all public information. Um, so the, the you know, council would keep on record that there were the submissions and they would keep on record our response to those submissions and typically then they would look at both aspects of, of both the submissions and also our response to whether they still um, are going to consider supporting the application or not. 
Yeah, actually, I remember when we got supplied with the objection letters from a couple of people that objected to our development, and I went to ring the council planning officer about them. Yeah, and for, and somehow I in the email I rang the um, actually rang the objector. Oh, really? oh no! <laughs> and he kind of he picked up the phone and um and uh, he, I said I'm looking for so and so from the council, and he said. Oh, no, no, you've called someone else, but I've got his name and number here somewhere on this letter. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, hang on, I'll go and get it. And so then he, um, You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then kind of the penny dropped and I went, oh, are you Mr. So-and-so? And he said, yes. I went, oh, this is Justin. I'm the developer that's doing the development that you've objected to and you've written a letter saying you've got concerns about flooding and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And so I ended up having a conversation with him and his concern was around flooding with overland water flow with the, yep. all the extra driveway mm-hmm. and then when I explained to him that there would be an on-site retention system and mm. that would capture all the water and there wouldn't be any overflow and things like that, he, he was actually quite happy with that. And you usually find that a lot of times the submission, um, sometimes they're based on things that council can't really put weight to and that is you're devaluing their land. So yeah. the council's not in a position of working out whether developments devalues or increases values of neighbouring properties. Sometimes you get complaints about things like overland flow and they're concerned about that. But the reality is if you're putting more roof structure that's getting captured and directed to a legal point of you know, the street or wherever it's going to go, you're actually likely to, to reduce the impact, not increase them. And it's just lack of knowledge. And usually council gets that. Um, what, what I guess the, the, the most concerning objection that we see is if we don't comply with an aspect of the development scheme, Example, height, and someone says, as a result of the height, this is what the impacts are to them, and you're like, yeah, I can kind of see what they're talking about. They're the ones you're like, oh, it's going to be really hard to argue this point because we don't comply, and we need to show that not, that our non-compliance isn't unreasonable, and they're raising some pretty good reasons why it's going to be a pretty big impact to them. So they're the kind of submissions where like, oh, this is going to get tricky. Yeah, well, I just had some friends, actually a previous guest on the show, John Marquez, whose application got knocked back and, yeah, they had their neighbours on their proposed site were pretty vociferous about not wanting any development in their court. Mm -hmm. They ended up going to the tribunal and they ended up, uh, well, they lost. So, council rejected their application and then the tribunal upheld that decision and basically said due to neighbourhood character they weren't going to approve the, the proposal. Yeah. Not that it necessarily didn't comply with the scheme, but it was more around neighbourhood character. Often that's somehow tied into the scheme. Again, not knowing every scheme across um, Australia and, and, and Melbourne like, but the, the, the way schemes are written in, in Queensland is they typically have the, the, the standard planning controls and then they'll typically have a neighbourhood character plan um, which talks about in specific areas what the expectation is of those those individual areas. Not always, but often I'll have those particular controls and they've, they've seen as being more significant than the general controls. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, there was another developer across the road on a similar-sized site who was tailing behind them. And oh, really? He, <laughs> he ended up... All, his proposal also got rejected. Yeah. But he reduced the density on his site following some of the sort of feedback from my friends across the road. Yeah. Uh, council rejected that application. He then went to the tribunal and he actually had it overturned. So he, had a, <laughs> he succeeded and the tribunal member put in their decision that neighbourhood character was not really grounds for knocking back the application oh, because mate. council had zoned it for, 
for change. So yeah. who would want to be a property developer? Hey, uh, <laughs> all these crazy listeners becoming property developers. It's it's definitely a tough gig, and I have absolute admiration for them because there's, there's so much uncertainty. Like you just mentioned, one person seems to get in trouble and, and get their application refused, while the next person with a little bit of variation gets it approved. So mate, it's it's a tricky minefield of a, a process. Yeah, well, I guess it was just going to that point that you made about councils interpreting their own scheme mm-hmm. to fit whatever their feeling is on the, the day or the week or the year. Yeah. So, And I think a lot of that comes back to community uh, feedback yeah. on, on change. And that's it. So let's say, again, we're going, I'll, I'll sort of touch on this building height thing a few times, but we'll stick on to that particular control, is if you didn't comply with the, con- the heights and there was no submissions, council kind of knows they're not being kept accountable to such a high level. And what I mean by that is if they approve it, they know that they haven't got that neighbour complaining about them not following their own scheme or whinging about the fact that they, they made a submission about height and council ignored them. So it's obviously a lot easier to get things approved when, when there's no submissions. Yeah, so if you do end up having to go to a tribunal, have you got any tips or advice about best ways to prepare or how to go about that? Yeah, again, it's different state to state. We have without prejudice meetings in Queensland and I imagine they may have something similar in, in Melbourne as well whereby um, the general intention is to try and resolve issues before it actually gets into to a courtroom. Um, and, and the point being in, the, in, in those without prejudice meetings is just to really listen to counsel. Um, it's always about negotiation and I think always the first point of negotiation is to try and really clearly understand what the problem is without trying to argue, um, get real clarity and what the major issues are and once you can isolate those issues, um, start responding to them. But also a little trick that, that we did once was, um, was we had a list of issues that counsel raised and there was about 25 issues, which is quite a long list. Anyway, when we started the meeting, we said, do you mind if we start from the back point first? Everyone looked at me thinking I was a bit strange, but they said, yeah, okay, that, we'll do that. And there was a particular reason I wanted to do that, and that was the first two or three points were the, the areas that we could we, we were the most problematic for us. So what I wanted to do was keep giving to council in what they wanted. So mo- most of the things they asked for, we were fine with. So we got to the point where after about you know, half an hour, 45 minutes of giving to council for 45 minutes, we then said, okay, now point three, point two, point one. these are the areas you, we want you to give to us a bit. Um, so it strengthened our negotiation position a bit because we'd given so much in areas that didn't really matter to the project so much. Very good tactic. I like your thinking. And whether it worked or not, I'll never know, but I, I, I tend to think it did and we got a good outcome, so the client was pretty stoked. Oh, that's good. Well... I guess we could make jokes about the short attention spans then of council planners and by the time they got to those top points, they were thinking about their tea and biscuits. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, but <laughs> it, it, was, it was probably one of the more bizarre strategies I've ever, ever sort of seen or used. Uh, now, what about some success stories? Yeah, probably the one that comes to mind recently, um, we had a project whereby there's a particular suburb that we do with development in and there's a lot of unformed roads and council just doesn't have got, hasn't got the budget to build those roads. Um, so we, we were doing a particular development and it was, there's a few little problems with the project. And I think what had happened, I don't know exactly, but I think what had happened was that the councillor in the area said, if we don't support these guys with this project, we're never going to get these roads built and we're never going to have an opportunity to get the roads built. So they invited us in for a meeting with, with somewhat of no agenda, um, which we thought was strange. And they, they put their cards on the table and said, guys, this is the situation we're in. No one here's going to build these roads. And we need to motivate you to build the road for us. And if you do that for us, we'll let you pretty much do what you want on this site. Let's talk about that. And they're going to waive fees. They bend over backwards. So I guess the point there is is that if you're in a situation where you can give to council in a way they really need to 
to what they really need. Um, sometimes you can get really great outcomes. In this particular client, um, you know, effectively what they originally applied for, they they added about forty percent to the yield they were originally going for. Um, and that we subdivided in a particular way. He was he was a first time developer, which blew me away. Um, he's going to get so, he's going to do so well. It's so it's, it's just fantastic. Um, so that's a yeah, getting a higher yield than expected, and what he's done on his feasibility is a really great outcome. But also, what's kind of cool is that this guy. Um, we asked if he could name the road. If we're going to build the road, we want to name the road. And council said, "Yep, we can do that." And, and this guy sadly lost a, a friend of his about two weeks prior to that, um, who, who died, and uh, he decided to call the road after his mate had passed away. So it's a really touching story that um, that our developer had named this road after a friend of his as a, as a tribute, but also he got a great outcome as well. So that, that's certainly a heartwarming story, um, not only for us, but obviously for him as well. See, developers do add to the fabric of the local community. They're good people. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great story. Other, other stories, like I think good story. This this will sound strange, but good stories for me is when I convince someone not to buy a site which which they they're about to buy. And what I mean by I hate seeing people lose money, and I hate seeing people struggle through their first developments. And if they're about to go unconditional on a property that that there's a problem they didn't recognise, um, for me just to be able to bring to their attention something they didn't know that would have stopped them from developing, I get a kick out of that because it means that um, their first project wasn't a disaster. And it means hopefully they'll go on and find a good one and they'll keep doing more developing. And so with the developers that you've uh, dealt with over the years, what are the kind of qualities that you see in the good ones that seem to consistently get pretty solid results? Mm, There's probably a few things that come to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is they've always got a really strong team around them um, and and they lean on their team. And what I mean by that is, is if there's something that I constantly see with first-time developers, they feel like they need to do it all by themselves. They need to work out the solution to every problem. Um, the really good ones typically just hand the problems to their team and say, you show me how we can solve this and I'll buy this property. If we can't, I won't buy it. Um, so they, they, they're, they're good at um, bringing, having a good team around them. But also I think what they're really good at is um, their doggedness. Um, I've certainly got one client that comes to mind and that you know, he, I think he must stay awake all night long um, because every day I'll call back with a new solution and just the doggedness of, that, of his um, desire to solve the problem and just not, not you know, letting any stone be unturned to try and find solutions. Um, the ones that I think who have great um, people skills because ultimately property development is very much around working with people, whether it be real estate agents, developers, uh, sorry, town planners or, or council planners. So they've got those good skills. Um, but I, I also I do property development courses myself a little bit. And I, I keep talking about the the most simplistic thing is is that if we don't really know why we're doing development in the first place and we haven't got that burning passion for why we want to do a development, there'll be enough problems that get in the way for us to say, oh, it's too hard. It, it you know I can't be bothered. It's too many problems. So um, the ones that I see who are really successful have a really you know whether it be they want to buy the beautiful house or a car or a, or have more time with their families or whatever. So it gets back to those core values of why they're developing in the first place and getting real about what they are. Yes, that's true. I would agree with that, particularly with the the purpose. You really need to know why you're doing it because you get so many roadblocks thrown up or hurdles that you have to overcome. And then the people skill stuff is yeah an absolute must. You're just dealing with so many different people every day. You've got to be able to motivate or inspire them to, to get the job done. Mm, absolutely. And the ones – and adding to that, some of our clients, like – some of the some of my clients, I just find myself getting more personally invested in, and they're the ones I, I get really grateful for the work we do for them. So the more 
grateful and more gratitude they have for their team around them and more they trust in their team, it's almost like the more I will want to make them happy, if that kind of makes sense. So therefore, I want to look after the ones that look after us as well. So things like, you know, don't expect that you, you think you'll, you'll pay every bill really late and then people will turn over back, fall over backwards to do work for you tomorrow when you need it in a hurry. So um, I guess it's just looking after your consultants and your team as well. Uh, yes. Well, let's flip the, the coin then. What are the things about developers that you find frustrating or that cause you issues? Yeah, probably the 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 couple of issues that I come up with is the ones that just won't listen. Um, and what I mean by that, sometimes I'm like, I can see them, I can I can see a train wreck about to happen, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm trying to tell them, and it's like I tell them so many different ways that what they're doing I think is not going to work, but they just don't listen. And then, despite my best attempts to try and stop them from getting in the way of this train, it's like almost they're committed to not listening to people around them and walk in front of the train. Now, usually you can try and stop them in time, but that's I find that extremely frustrating. Um, what other things do I find frustrating? Um, I guess it's probably the major thing. They just they 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 don't listen to good advice, and it can be given from multiple points, and they still won't listen to it. Um, I don't have too many frustrations with clients, to be honest. Maybe I'm quite fortunate, but they're probably the areas that can frustrate me the most. Okay. Now, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, yep. at what age or point would you go back to and what would you tell yourself <laughs> and why? Wow, that's a heavy question. Jeez, didn't expect that one. Um, well, I don't know what age. I guess being a young boy, I would tell myself that everything works out fine in the end. Just have faith and trust in the process because I've had plenty of ups and ups and downs, and um, it always it, it seems to always work out all right in the end. So, which is uh, which is good advice. I'm listening to I'm listening to that advice myself right now because uh, I, I I think we don't always. Um, I personally sometimes think when things aren't going well, like why aren't they going well? What am I doing wrong? And uh, and get a bit down on myself. So I think I just have faith in the the bigger picture that that ultimately everything's happening for a greater good. And and uh, if I just go on the flow with that, I'll, I think it'll work out well. That's a heavy question, mate. I wasn't expecting something like that. <laughs> I'll just keep you on your toes. Make sure that you're yeah, still yeah. still listening. So I want to ask you the same question. Yes, good one. Um... I think it would be some stage in my early 20s and I would have told myself to stay. I remember being back in my early 20s and thinking that I wanted to do something in business uh, but it took me about 15 years to finally get around to doing it so I think if I'd got started sooner and started doing some more professional development, well, sorry, more personal development and learning more about myself, um, that would have been beneficial. I would have accelerated where I've gotten to. And I think the advice I would have given would have been that, uh, that, you, that you are just fine the way you are. You don't have <laughs> any shortcomings. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, and you uh, and you can go out and achieve whatever you want to achieve. I like that. Lots of wisdom there. That's that's a good one. Yeah. So if only if only we could go back in time, <laughs> I probably would have uh, told myself a couple of the uh, horses that were going to win the Melbourne Cup. Or... Sure, that would help. Or the winning <laughs> the winning lotto numbers. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, I know. Actually, I know what I would have said. I would have said, go and buy these particular sites for uh, <laughs> about a fifth of what they're probably worth today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. 
Well, there you go. You caught me off uh, off guard there. I wasn't oh, expecting you to turn okay. that around on me. On that point, I um, I do a lot of personal development as well. So I think it's a huge part um, of success. And I think for anyone developing, it's like you know what what gets in their way is themselves a lot of the times. Um, so all of my you know, clients that are the achieving big goals, they very much work on themselves as well. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that about the the clients that you've got that it's sort of go on and do what other people would probably describe as amazing things, but they just sort of see it as just part of the journey. I um. I think that it's like we expect a lot in a year. I think a lot of people want to change the world in a year. So over, they kind of, I think there's a saying, you overestimate what you can do in 12 months but underestimate what you can do in 10 years. And I think those that consistently have a long-term goal, that being a you know, five- to ten-year goal and just keep making progress towards that long-term goal without it being you know, a ridiculously um, out-there type goal, you know, it's always nice to, to get excited. I'm going to make a, year, a million dollars in a year. And you know that's that's a great goal, if, but it's kind of very much out there. Versus the people who have said, you know what, in in five years I want to pay, I want to I want to quit my job and have enough income from property developing to replace my income. Um, and the people who I see successful, those ones, they're like the locomotive. Once they start building up a steam of engine, uh, a, sorry, engine full of steam, they just keep on going even when things aren't going so well. Um, so it's that long term stability um, that seems to work for those guys. Okay. What about any influential books that stand out for you that have perhaps made an impact on your life that might be of interest to developers out there? Yeah, most of the books I really like aren't property developing books. They're actually personal development books. And for me, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a classic. That kind of opened my eyes up a long, long time ago. Um, I'd, I could just r- ramble off so many um, books that I think are, you know, Think and Grow Rich um, is one that comes to mind. All those sorts of books about mindset. The classics. They are, I, I really love the old stuff. Um, I like the books that have, um, like Earl Nightingale, The Strangest Secret. If you ever YouTube that, it's old. It's like 1940s old, but it's just pure and it's just great personal development stuff. And I really, I really enjoy it because it's not, it's not, no one's trying to put their angle on it. It's like these days everyone's got to have a different angle on personal development. Where back then I was just pure um, and uh, I really enjoy the old stuff. Okay, very good. We'll, I'll go and check that out. Mm. All right. Have you got? You've given us lots of tips, but have you got any final one for property developers out there to help them ensure that they either succeed or that they get their planning permits? Yeah, I think it, I'll relate a story here because I think it's the easiest way is, is get serious and get real about it. Um, I think what happens is a lot of us. I, I, I speak even on behalf of myself. I, I was doing a five lot subdivision project here about five years ago, um, and even though I knew the project looked like it was going to work, I needed to use a finance partner, so it was a bit tricky. I knew it was going to work, but I, was, I wasn't being real or being serious. I hadn't made that commitment that I was going to make it work. Um, and there's people out there who I think saying that you know, they're, they're saying to themselves, I'm going to be a property developer, but they haven't got their finances sorted out yet. They're, they're, kind of, they're sort of dabbling. And even if a really good deal fell in their lap, they'd probably find a way of making a mess of it. So I guess what I'm saying is, is if you get real about it and have your exit strategies like your, your due diligence periods or your, your, um, your cooling off periods, but start – you can never learn faster than when you actually have to know the answer. And the reason you have to know the answer is because you've just put a contract on a property and you have to know whether you can subdivide it or you have to know whether you can do this many townhouses. So I would say um, jump off the, the fence. Make sure you've got your, your safety blankets in place. Jump off the fence and get yourself surrounded by really good people, mentors or, or people in the, involved in those sorts of projects and actually put some skin in the game because that's where you're really going to learn. Okay, very good. Well, where can people find out more about you, Craig, if they're interested? 
Yeah, definitely. So a few things would be visit our webpage, which is www.asiplanning.com.au. So, and that's our webpage. Our, my email address is the same, but it's just craig at asiplanning.com.au. Um, and uh, our phone number, which is in, in, in Queensland, is 7 8654 And that would be the best ways and easiest ways to get in contact with us. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you for uh, sharing all your tips and insights on how town planners can help property developers be more successful. It is a really critical part of the process and one that can be frustrating, except uh, when you get that stamp for what you want and then it's time to celebrate. But there's one last thing I should share with you. I'm actually in the process of making something right now, which is a one-page checklist for property developers. Um, What it's designed to do is it's designed they can use it at home, looking at sites and the information on council's web-based planning tools, but also on site to try and bring to people's attention um, aspects of the development that may be problematic. So if, I'll be finishing that fairly soon. So if that's of any value to either yourself or your, or your listeners, if they'd like a, a copy of that and the, uh, the link to some, some audios to how to use them, I'm um, more than happy to offer that to your, your, your listeners as well. So, yep, that'd be great. If you send me through your details, I can put it on the show notes for this episode. Um, otherwise, I'm presume at some stage it'll go up on the ASI planning website. Yeah, it will. Go there and try and find it. That's it. It should be about probably another two or three weeks' time I'll have that finished. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that resource. Always nice to have checklists. All right, Craig, we'll let you get back to uh, whatever it is town planners do. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. I really appreciate the chance to have a chat with you today. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks for being on the Property Developer Podcast. Thank you. See you, Craig. Okay, there you go. I thought that was a great discussion with Craig about planning. I know the planning part of a development can be very frustrating, particularly when council are not really happy with the direction you want to go in, or are trying to get you to scale down. But it is one of the most important parts of the game. Get your planning permit and you are one step closer to finishing. However, if you get a good designer on your team and potentially a great private town planner, you will give yourself the best shot of getting something that you are happy with. I took quite a few points out of the discussion with Craig, including these. 1. Use a town planner who has experience in your type of projects and understands the council you are dealing with. Make sure if you are using a private town planner that they have the relevant experience working on similar projects as yours, and that they have a track record of success. I think it is also worth asking the planner how many similar types of projects he may have worked on which have failed to get a permit. You also need to find someone who is good at negotiating and communicating with council officers, as they are your key representative through planning. 2. Confirm verbally at meetings with council what has been agreed, and follow up with written notes. I think this should become standard practice for your designers and town planners so that everyone in the meeting is clear on what was agreed, and by following it up with an email you also have a written trail of what took place. These notes won't always help if council subsequently changes its mind, but at least you can show at a later date, if you need to, the council change direction, not you. 3. Be smart with your concessions to council. I liked Craig's tactic of starting out with all the small points that you are willing to concede, and working backwards to the biggest issues that you want council to show some flexibility on. I think this is a good idea, and certainly can't hurt. People do become aware when they feel they are doing all the taking, and you can harness this to work in your favour. Give it a try and see if it works. Alright, that's pretty much it for this show. 
If you want to check out my latest project video, head over to propertydeveloperpodcast.com and check out the show notes. You can also find all the past episodes there too. And join me on Instagram at Property Developer Podcast for my property developer porn pics and development videos. Thanks again for listening in, and until next time, may all your town planning applications be speedily approved. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.